0: Assalamu alaikum wa الله وبركاته الحمد لله رب wa rahmatullahi wa على wa المرسلين wa النبيين wa وعلى آله وصحبه wa أما wa rahmatullahi بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم in the law, Mala, I could the whole you saloon, Adam Nabia, you had Ladina Amun, Sulu, Ali, he was a limb with Sleema. Sayyidina, Muhammadin in Nabir, me, Wala, wa Ali, he was a limb Sleema. Respected listeners, we continue with the theme of hypocrisy and its signs and traits. I've spoken on this topic at length and in great detail over the past few weeks. And so, but the topic is so vast and the number of verses in the Qur'an that remain to be recited and explained even about hypocrisy and the traits of hypocrisy, are so numerous that I don't think we will have sufficient time and I don't want to rush them, otherwise we won't be able to do them justice. So what I think I will do is wrap up this topic and provide a summary today of many of the Outstanding verses and sections of the Quran. And then, insha'Allah, next week I'll move on from the verses of the Quran to the hadith of Rasulullah. And I'll probably explain just uh, two, three hadith, maybe just even two, about hypocrisy and its signs. And then we'll suffice with that. So, some of the remaining traits that are mentioned in different parts of the Qur'an, which we haven't covered in detail, are betrayal. The munafiqun, the hypocrite at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa One of the greatest things which Allah condemns in detail about their behaviour is their betrayal of Rasulullah at critical moments. So that's one thing which is very evident throughout the Qur'an. The other thing which Allah mentions in more than one place is their two-facedness and their desire to please everyone for their personal gain. And this means going to one party, convincing them, them, reassuring them that they are with them, they are friends with them, devoted and dedicated to them, sincere towards them, And then repeating the same pledges and promises and assurances to another party. So this topic is also covered in more than one place of the Qur'an regarding the hypocrites. One of the traits which maybe I'll expand on, which Allah mentions again in more than one place, is their laziness in ibadah. وَإِذَا قَامُوا إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ قَامُوا كُسَالَةً النَّاسِ وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا That when they, referring to the hypocrites, when they rise to prayer, they rise indolently, lazily, half-heartedly. And they do so, يُرَاءُونَ النَّاسِ merely to show the people qalila, and they do not remember Allah except very little. So before I move on to the other topics, let me just briefly expand on this. So this is something we can learn a lot from, which is that our ibadah should be sincere, full of devotion full of meaning and depth. It shouldn't be a mindless ritual because that is a trait of hypocrisy. We shouldn't feel it's just something I have to do. And worse is what the hypocrites would do, which is that they would pray, they would do many of the things, they would join Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, But it was all for show And And this is why Allah condemns them Because they are extremely insincere in their ibadah Even their spending, even their praying even their standing with Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, it was all for show. And as a result, they cannot be trusted. If someone does something for show, that shows great insincerity. That person cannot be called upon or trusted to do the right thing at the right time. Because their only consideration is themselves. if they even reduce their salah to show, and Allah specifically speaks of that, that that is a warning for us. So, our ibadah should be sincere, should be full of devotion and depth. Now, of course, this can't happen immediately. It's not easy to achieve. But it's something we have to consciously and continuously work towards we can't let this slip people often ask allah says in the beginning of surah al-mu'minun qad hum indeed successful are those believers who are humble and devout in their prayer so this is often referred to as hushu in that's the verb of The word khashion meaning devout, humble, is derived from the root, well, is derived from the verb khushur. So what does khushur originally mean? And in the Asian languages, and even in Arabic, uh, but you often hear this phrase in Urdu, khushur and khudur. Khushur, khudur. So in Arabic you hear it too. Khushur, khudur. These are two separate words. So what do they actually mean? So we often hear people say, how do I develop khushur and khudur in salah? So what do these two words mean? They are similar in that they both refer to submission. And humility. In another verse of the Quran, Allah says in Surah Al-Hadid, "Alm yani lil-ladina amanu antakhshaa qulubuhum lil-dhikrillah, wama nizal min al Has the time not yet come for the believers, antakhshaa qulubuhum lil-dhikrillah, that their hearts submit and soften and become humble to the remembrance of Allah? and to that truth which has come down to them. So this is what khushu' means, to submit. And when a person submits, they humble themselves. If one submits before another, you can only submit sincerely with humility. So the two go hand in hand. So this is why khushu' means submission and humility. So what's the difference between khushu and khudu? The same words, same root letters, khā, the first letter is khā, and the final letter is āin, and only the middle letter differs. It's either sheen, which is khushu, or dād, which is khudu. They're actually very similar. Well, one distinction between the two is, although it's not always used, but there is one technical distinction, which is that khushur, khudur, with the daad in the middle, refers to the humility and the submission and the softening of the body and the limbs. And khushur, with the sheen, refers to the submission and the humility of the heart. Just as Allah says in that verse, and تخشع قلوبهم has a time not yet come for the believers that their hearts soften and submit and become humble to the remembrance of Allah. So khushur, khudur in Salah therefore means the softening, the relaxing, the submitting, and the humility of, the, of both the body and the heart in Salah. That's devoutness, that's devotion. So this is how we should be in Salah, devoted and devout, humble, silent, submissive, soft and relaxed. Relaxed not in the sense that we are indifferent and nonchalant, no. Relaxed in the sense that our bodies are relaxed and submissive before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They drop Relaxation in the sense that the body drops before Allah. The body should not be tense. And similarly, when you submit, you lower yourself, physically as well as mentally and emotionally, so the body should be lowered before Allah, humbled before Allah. The heart and mind should also be softened and humbled and lower before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now that's very difficult to achieve. So as I began saying, people often ask, how do I develop this khushur and khudur in salah? Well, like most things, there's no magic pill. There's no instant fix or solution. It's as easy and as difficult as doing it to yourself. No one else can do it for you. There's no magic pill. So, sometimes doctors, when they become a bit stern, they are known to say to their patients, look, you have to do this. Doctor, how can I do that? Because we're always looking for that instant, magical, easy, simple solution which requires no effort, no willpower, no determination, no resolve, no hard work, and no time on our part. So, doctors often say, sometimes sternly, you have to do this. And if you say, well, how do I do that? This is how you do it. It's as easy and as hard as that. That's all. It's as simple and as difficult as that. The most the doctor can do is advise you guide you, point you in the right direction. Similarly, in deen, the most that ulama can do, that a murabbi, someone who's mentoring you and guiding you, the most a teacher, an alim, a sheikh, a murabbi, a guide, a muslih, a murshid, can do, is advise you, show you point you in the right direction, and guide you. The lifting, the heavy work, the resolve, the determination, the willpower, the mustering of that strength and that willpower, and the hard work, and the perseverance. All of that is the responsibility of the individual. No one else can do it for you. And this is true for every single thing in Dean. And I'm, I'm saying this because this is one of the most famous questions we get asked. How do I do this? How do I achieve that? Yes, if a person genuinely doesn't know, then it's a valid question, of course. But often, we already know that, Okay, I have to do A, I have to do B. But we still persist in asking, how do I do A? How do I achieve B? It's in everybody's grasp. We can do it. لا يكلف الله نفسا إلا وسعها. We, we know this verse very well. Allah does not burden a soul except to the extent of its strength. We are able to do it. We just have to develop that determination and that resolve to see it through. So same with khushu' or khudu' It's not easy, undoubtedly. But unless you make a conscious, continuous, concerted effort to develop the salah so that it becomes sincere only for the sake of Allah. There's no show in it. There's no rigidity in it. There's no inflexibility. There's no casual behaviour about it. There's nothing routine or ritual about it. We won't always achieve it, but every time we fall off, we have to get back on. Every time we veer off, we have to bring ourselves back. And by constantly training oneself to do this, it can be achieved. So the salah of a mu'min is devout, devoted, deep, profound, and meaningful. The salah of a munafiq is rapid. It's devoid of any meaning, bereft of any spirituality of any depth. It's functional. And its purpose is never to please Allah. Its purpose is always something else, to show. For showmanship, for display. And although Allah says this about Salah, that and Nas they merely show the people, that's exemplary in the sense that they would be guilty of the same behavior in everything they did. And this is what a mu'min needs to fear, that none of my ibadah should be for show. To seek fame, a name, worldly glory for one's good deeds is the behavior of a munafiq, not the behavior of a mu'min. Because it's tied in with what I've said previously about the vision and the outlook of a munafiq. A munafiq only sees the dunya, never the akhirah. A munafiq is short-sighted. A munafiq wants and seeks instant gratification and gain. And so their intentions, their motives, their objectives are always short-term. And so their ibadah is never for the akhirah, it's always for the dunya. A mu'min, on the other hand, is far-sighted. A mu'min's gaze is on the akhirah, not on the dunya. So even their dunya is for the akhirah. Even their dunya is for the akhirah. So why wouldn't their deen be for the akhirah? And a munafiq His deen is also for the dunya, so why wouldn't his dunya be for the dunya? A mu'min's dunya and deen are for deen and are for the akhirah. And a munafiq's deen and dunya both are for the dunya. So a munafiq's salah is for the dunya, a munafiq's sadaqah is for the dunya. A mu'min's sadaqah, charity, is always for the akhirah. There should be no show. So, I've given the example of Sadaqah because sometimes it may be difficult to understand Riyah, ostentation, showmanship, display when it comes to Salah. But we can easily understand it when it comes to Sadaqah because that's a display of wealth. When a person gives in charity, it's a display of generosity. It attracts name, gain, fame, recognition. So a mu'min's ibadah, whether it's salah, or zakah, or sadaqah, or even ilm, whether it's ta'allum or ta'aleem, meaning studying or teaching, all of this is for the akhirah. And a munafiq's ibadah, not just his salah and his sadaqah, but also his ta'allum and ta'aleem, his learning and his teaching and his ilm, is for the dunya. So how can an alim be a munafiq? In a hadith related by Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and his musnad and others, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, إِنَّ أَخْوَفَ ma أَخَافُ عَلَىٰ مُنَافِقٍ عَلِيمٍ Indeed, the greatest thing that I fear for my Ummah is every hypocrite who is learned of tongue, eloquent of tongue. So if an alim, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given an alim, the ilm of his kitab, of his book, and the ilm of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the words of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa And that alim becomes insincere. I'm not saying he is a munafiq. But if that alim becomes insincere, and then he utilizes, he actually exploits his ilm. For the sake of the dunya and not the deen then even the alim's efforts, the alim's teaching, the alim's preaching, is hypocritical. It's one of the traits of nifaq and hypocrisy. And it is highly possible. There's no exception. Insincerity, being, a trait of hypocrisy is not confined to salah. It extends to every ibadah. Sadaqah as well. It even extends to ilm. And I say this because of the students of ilm seated here, those who are actually studying. Fear riyah, fear showmanship, fear display, fear ostentation, fear hypocrisy in ilm. Fear it. And the hypocrisy of ilm is far, far greater than the hypocrisy of salah. Because when a hypocrite is hypocritical in his salah, that's quite limited. But when an alim is hypocritical in his ilm, that damage is not restricted to the individual. It extends to the whole ummah. This is why the Prophet said, Indeed, the greatest fear that I have of the things that I fear For my ummah, kulla munafiqin alimil lisaan is every hypocrite, every munafiq was eloquent of tongue, learned of tongue. So, going back to the verses of the Qur'an, one of the traits which Allah mentions in more than one place is the showmanship and the display. In worship, especially in, specifically in salah, of the hypocrites, even at the time, of, especially at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So I've mentioned today the hypocrites being lazy as well. So they they will pray, but they'll pray very lazily, very indolently. It's a burden. Everything's a burden. They don't do it enthusiastically. And that's what a mu'min should never treat siyam, sadaqah, salah, any of the ibadat, as a burden. Never. This is why Imam Abu Hanifa الله, advised that if a person is hungry and the time for salah comes, then the person should eat first, and then pray late. Not pray first and eat later. And his explanation was very beautiful, he would say. Of course, this is derived from the hadith. This is derived from the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu and the sahaba radhiyallahu anhum. Once Abdullah ibn Umar radhiyallahu anhumah was actually eating whilst the imam was reciting qira'ah in salah. So he was eating. And Imam Hanifa, rahimahullah, used to say, I'd rather make my food my salah than my salah my food. Meaning, if I know that I still have to pray, then I'd rather eat first. Why? That during my food, I will be preoccupied with the thought that I still have to do my Salah. So my food will become my Salah. So I'd rather make my food my Salah than the other way around which is that as many of us like to do, we have a choice now. We have to pray Salah, we have to eat. So what do we do? So often our attitude is let me pray in haste and eat at leisure. So, Salah, let me quickly get it out of the way. Five minutes, and then have a three-course meal over 50 minutes. And when a person then prays, stomach's much rumbling, person's hungry, they can smell the food, it's waiting at the table, it's tasty, and... The whole salah becomes a person's food because that's all they are thinking about. So Imam Abu Hanifa would say, I'd rather make my food my salah than my salah my food. This again speaks of that devotion. And I was saying that a mu'min should never treat any ibadah as a bird. Never. And in this, we often treat our salah as a burden. It's something we have to get out of the way so that we can do other things peacefully and at leisure. That's not the attitude of a mu'min. Of course, we fail, but we have to remind ourselves and work towards it. Because that's what the hypocrites used to do when they would rise to prayer. They'd rise lazily, indolently. A mu'min should be... Enthusiastic about every act of ibadah, Enthusiastic about fasting. And mashallah, we still have it in us. We see it in Ramadan. Before the arrival of Ramadan, people are genuinely excited. That is a sign of Iman. That is a sign of Iman. People are genuinely excited. People look forward to Ramadan. Even though it's not easy. People look forward to that spirituality, that atmosphere, the ibadah. And people are enthusiastic. They want to fast. So there is that glimpse of iman. Unfortunately, we're unable to sustain it. So within the first few days of Ramadan, our enthusiasm wanes and we begin looking forward to Eid. And not just because of the celebration, just so that we don't have to fast anymore. And we see it in Taraweeh as well. In the first night of Taraweeh, the Masajid are full. And then, after the first week, the numbers begin to drop and dwindle. And the middle of Ramadan is the lull. Genuinely, there's a real lull and drop and the numbers begin begin picking up towards the end of the month there's no real explanation for that other than laziness lack of enthusiasm and of course it's not easy but we have to work on it because laziness indolence half-heartedness in the ibadah and lack of enthusiasm is a sign of the munafiqeen. That's how the hypocrites were at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Anyway, moving on. As I said, the some of the signs mentioned other than laziness in Ibadah in prayer are mainly two facedness, betrayal and <clears throat> short sightedness and another thing. Creating conflict, corruption, and poisoning the minds of the believers. Instructing one another to do evil. In a verse, Allah says, Al-Munafiqoon wa to munafiqat ba'duhum min ba'd. bil-munkar wa yanhawna ani maroof wa yakbidhuna aydiyahum. Nassu allaha <laughs> fanasiyahum. إِنَّ الْمُنَافِبِينَهُمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ This verse describes it very beautifully. The hypocritical men and the hypocritical women. They are of each other. Meaning that just as believers like to associate with each other, rely on each other, depend on each other, support each other, they encourage each other, They remind each other. That's what believers do. A believer is a mirror to another believer. As I've explained, one of the meanings is that a believer points out the errors of another believer in order to guide them to what's best. They look out for each other. They care for each other. They instruct each other to do good. They enjoin the good and forbid the evil amongst each other. What does Allah say in Surah Al-Asr? (laughs) وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ خُسْرِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ بِالْحَقِّ By time, indeed man is in a state of great loss, except for those who believe and who do good deeds. What do they do? And they encourage each other, they remind each other, they instruct each other to the truth and to perseverance. Steadfastness. So, that's what believers do. So just as believers, they rely on each other, depend on each other, support each other, encourage one another to do good, guide one another to the way of Allah. Hypocrites band with each other. They rely on each other. They depend on each other. They defend each other. And they actually encourage each other and others to do something. Everyone's giving da'wah. Everyone gives da'wah. Everyone is always pulling. Everyone is always pulling. It's the law of the universe. There's no inertia. Nothing is still or static. Everything pulls or pushes. Everything moves. That's the law of the universe. And as individuals, as people, we do exactly the same. We push, we pull. We give da'wah. We're always pulling each other towards us, towards our opinions, our beliefs, our preferences, our wants, our ways. So a mu'min pulls, tries to draw and attract everyone to good, to haq, to sabr, to perseverance, to steadfastness, to the way of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And a mu'min does that by word of mouth, by behaviour, by attitude, by deed. This is sometimes when you find someone who's good as a person. They don't have to say anything. Their demeanour, their character, their mannerism. All of this is sufficient to attract you. And to actually encourage you to become like. And a munafiq and others, they are constantly attracting. They are a magnet too. But their attraction, their invitation, their da'wah is not to good. But it's to their ways. And what are their ways? Lying. Deception. Intrigue. Plotting, scheming, harming. Poisoning, and that's exactly what the munafiqun would do at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu As Allah describes here, the hypocritical men and women—they are of each other. Unlike the believers who yamuruna ma'ruf wa munkar, the believers enjoin the good and forbid the evil. The munafiqun yamuruna munkar Allah says they actually encourage and instruct others, to sin. And they prevent each other and others, and they forbid good. That may sound strange, how is that possible? But Allah says it. That's exactly what the munafiqun do. So anyone who encourages another to do evil To commit sin. That is the way of the hypocrites. That is actually a trait of hypocrisy. Remarkably, in the Quran, Allah mentions something. Which I've actually heard other people say. In this day and age, which is that they encourage someone encourages another to commit sin, when the other person resists because they're uncomfortable, something they haven't done, and another person's encouraging them. Wallahi, people have related this to and I've actually heard it myself. Where the person who's encouraging the others to commit sin, actually says to them, Look, don't worry, I will shoulder your sin, I will take the burden of your sin, I will shoulder your sin. This is exactly what the hypocrites said at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu Alaihi they actually said to others, that we will bear your sins. And Allah says, من من شيء, And they will never bear the burden of others' sins. They are liars. So, people do encourage one another to commit sin. And they do prevent one another from doing good. And this is actually much easier. We should be very wary of this. (laughs) One of the reasons is that we want people to be like us because we don't want to feel left out. We don't want to feel guilty. We don't want to feel left behind. We don't want to stick out like sore thumbs. So... If someone's trying to do good, and we are failures in that regard, it reminds, us, it reminds us of our failure, of our backwardness, of our loneliness. So what do we do? We try to ensure that they remain at our level. So we stop them from doing good. Why are you doing this? There's no need for you to do this. Why are you trying to be so goody-goody? Children actually say that. I remember when we were children, it's a group of children. If any one person's trying to do good, then the others gang up on him and say, why are you trying to be all goody-goody? We used to hear that phrase a lot. Why are you trying to be all goody-goody? Just like in, in the class, everyone's messing around. If someone's trying to behave, That person faces a lot of abuse. Why are you trying to be the teacher's pet? Why why do you want to be the odd one out? Why do you want to be good? And the reason for preventing that person from not misbehaving and from actually doing good is that they feel guilty and sinful. In psychology, it's known as projective identification. Where... To make yourself feel better, there well, are two things. One is projection of guilt. Wallahi, that is a sign of hypocrisy as well. Allah mentions in the Quran in the context of the hypocrites. Whoever commits a sin or a grievous Sarah. Then, from, then he casts that sin onto an innocent person. that indeed that person has borne a great sin and a clear calumny. A calumny and a clear sin. What does that mean? actually happened at the time of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where someone committed theft and he was a hypocrite. When he was about to be found out he actually planted evidence and accused an innocent person of being guilty of that sin and cry. And this is the reference. This is according to one narration. So projection of guilt is a famous term in psychology. That's a trait of hypocrisy. And projective identification, which is another psychological term used often about PDs. PDs are personality disorders. So they actually called, they have a personality disorder, but often in psychiatry, they are referred to as personality disorders. PDs, because they are the disorder. Someone rang me yesterday. Well, I spoke to someone yesterday. Uh, And the person, the individual was quite anxious about their relationship with an individual who many suspect has a personality disorder because of the behavior. A walking disaster, a walking whirlwind, mayhem, carnage, everywhere. So in the conversation, I began saying as well, PD, meaning the personality disorder. So. Projective identification and projection of guilt, wallahi, these are both traits of hypocrisy and these two terms are also used about personality disordered individuals. So what are they? Projection of guilt. This is what a hypocrite does, which is they are guilty of something and they falsely accuse another in order to deflect attention, divert attention and deflect criticism. They have no shame in doing so. So they are the ones who are lying, but they actually say to the innocent person, you're lying. And they say it with such conviction, the poor, good, innocent person actually pauses and thinks, am I guilty? These people are remorseless, unscrupulous. They have no shame, no sense of guilt. No conscience at all. And with a blank face, they could be lying through their teeth, but they'll gaslight you and accuse you of lying. And good guys always come last. So the poor innocent soul thinks, am I guilty? They begin to question themselves. So that's what that verse says. Whoever commits a sin or a grievous crime an error, and then casts that onto an innocent person, then indeed they have borne a great calumny and a clear sin. That's projection of guilt. But what I was speaking about children, and not just children, but don't be the teacher's pet, and why do they do that? So that's just a crude example of how children do that. But as adults, we do it too. If someone is doing something good, we don't want to be left out. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to be reminded of how terrible we are, how sinful we are. So what do we do? We ensure that that person doesn't rise above us. So we bring them down to our level so that we feel better in psychology, psychiatry. This is known as projective identification. Another example of this is people with personality disorders they actually feel quite terrible within at times, or a lot of the time. So, their world is quite, is in great turmoil. Within, their world is in great turmoil. And they feel really bad. So how do they make themselves feel better? Do you know how they make themselves feel better? They actually go out and they create the same turmoil for someone else. So when they create that carnage and that turmoil and that inner hell for someone else, because they bring that person down to their level, they think, fine, I'm okay now, it's not just me, it's him as well, it's her as well. And in Arabic there's a saying, <laughs> that when a calamity is common, it's lighter. If someone thinks, oh, I'm the only one suffering, then that's really terrible. But if everyone's suffering the same, we're all in the same boat, it makes me feel better. So the fact that the others are suffering makes a person feel better. So that's what people do. When they, And this is why some people will deliberately come out and spoil your day. They will. There's no need, there's no call for it. They'll actually go out of their way to spoil your day. Spoil your mood. Why do they do it? It's all about them. It's because projective identification, they want, you to, they want to bring you down to the same level so that they feel better. And they can only, subhanAllah, how twisted is this? If they see someone else being good doing good. Their thinking isn't that I can feel better by elevating and lifting myself up to that level. No. It's twisted. They don't do that. They think, no. What I should do, I can feel better not by lifting myself up to the higher level of this person, but rather, I should... Make myself feel better by dragging this person down to my level. That is projective identification. Now, I've gone into this <laughs> digressed explanation because this is what we do in Deen. This is the meaning of munkarwe Munkar wa anil Ma'roof. They enjoin evil. And they actually forbid good. When we see someone doing good, rather than being a mu'min and thinking Allah, Let me try to be like him, like the hadith of Bukhari Muslim and others Which Prophet Sallallahu said there is no envy except in two people Oh, except in two things. And what's the first one? The first one is رجل آتاه الله القران فهو يتلوه اناء الليل وآناء النهار فسمعه جار له فقال ليتني اوتيت مثل ما اوتي فعملت مثل ما يعمل فسمعه جار له فقال ليتني اوتيت مثل ما اوتي فعملت مثل ما يعمل there is no envy except in two things the first thing is that of a man whom Allah has blessed with the Qur'an. So he recites it for the hours of the night and day. So a neighbor hears him. And then the neighbor says, Would that I be given what he has been given so that I can do what he does? That's a mu'min. And it is in this that those who vie and rival each other should compete with each other in. So when we see someone going ahead, our thought shouldn't be, let me pull him back. Rather, our thought should be, let me compete with him so that I can catch up with him or even beat him in good. When we see others doing good, a mu'min thinks, let me rise to that level of good. A munafiq thinks, let me bring that person down to my level and that's the meaning of ya'muruna bil munkar wa yanhauna 'anil ma'ruf they actually forbid good now this i'm not saying everyone who does this is a hypocrite like i've said throughout rather this is one of the traits of hypocrisy we should be very careful especially in families this is very common in families it's very common what when a family member is trying to do good Other family members actually discourage and prevent. It's remarkable. Spouses stop each other from doing good. But, wallahi, and this is no lie, throughout my life, the number of cases where I've dealt with, the number of cases that I've dealt with, where the wife is preventing the husband from doing good is maybe about that much. And the number of cases where the husband is preventing the wife from doing good is off the scale. Truly is, and that may come as a surprise. I have dealt with countless cases where the wife wants to do good And the person preventing her is not her friend, is not her acquaintance or colleague. It's not even anyone else. It's actually her own husband. Her husband prevents her from doing good. And not indirectly, directly. He forcibly prevents her from obeying Allah and his Rasul, forcibly. He forcibly obey, forcibly <coughs> makes her commit sin, forcibly prevents her from doing good. i dealt with countless cases. There are other examples, that's why I said family, where, for instance, uh, someone's trying to do good. Parents don't forcibly stop the children, but they strongly discourage them. And the strange thing is that it doesn't affect them. So, for instance, the far, if the parents, if the son or the daughter is doing something, it doesn't affect the parents in a negative way at all. It doesn't cost them anything. So, why do they prevent them? And this is in some cases they prevent the children because they do not want the extended family and others to think that the son or the daughter has become too religious. Now, how can a person become too religious? It's only by comparison and contrast. It's a relative term. So if the father's a layabout and utterly useless, if the mother isn't behaving as she should be, and if others in the extended family are neglectful of their religious and moral and ethical duties. And they indeed are all over the place. And that's the picture of the family and the extended family. And then one or two people emerge who try to do good, who do good, who look good, who speak good. It's that same projective identification. The others don't want to feel worse off. So rather than the others admiring them and begin to emulate them and aspire to rise to their level, no, everyone collectively works to bring them and drag them down. I remember once a young man came to me in the masjid. It's just one example of many. It's just something that occurred to me right now. A young man came to me in the masjid and s- sat me down. And he actually began weeping. He wept with his body shaking, racked with emotion. And he was complaining about his father. He said, "All my life," he was in his early twenties. "All my life." My father has opposed me practicing religion all my And he wasn't being fanatical in any way, no. He was just trying to be a good person. And one example, he gave me an example that. He approached, this was many, many years ago, so in those days, uh, now it's quite common for teachers and schools to provide areas for prayer, for worship, for reflection in schools. But in, in many, many years ago, this wasn't so common. So this young man, he said to me that when I was 15 years old, I approached my teachers and I requested them that, I would like to do my afternoon prayer during the lunch hour. So could I have, uh, is there any place where I can pray and maybe with others? So the school was very accommodating, but they said in order to facilitate this, can we have some sort of official request? And because you're a child, can you maybe ask your, uh, they said to the other children, can you get your parents to maybe write in or contact us and then... Uh, with the support of the parents and coordinating with them, we can maybe make some arrangements for a prayer facility. Not specially, but just some, a quiet space where they can retreat for uh, a short time during the lunch break. So he spoke to his father. The other children spoke to their parents, and he spoke to his father. He said, my father went to school, and this is when he was really weeping. He said, my father went to school, and he actually told the teacher, he said, don't let him pray, my son is mad. He said, about his own son, he said, my son is mad. So fathers, who in their age should know better, are calling their young teenage children who try to do good, mad. And this isn't the only case. It's quite common. Someone begins praying, fasting, practicing, and members of the extended family and the immediate family aren't so observant. What do they do? Rather than aspire to become like the individual, they actually turn around and say, Yabagole, he's mad. It's a common term he's mad. Nuh alayhi salam, when he would go around giving da'wah, this is a traditional sunnah. Calling religious people mad, observant people mad, is a traditional sunnah. Nuh alayhi salam, in fact, Allah says, they say of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Majnoom he's mad. So Allah says, What, have they left a will to each other? That whenever anyone comes who encourages you and invites you to good, you call him mad? Nuh alayhi salam. They said of him, Qadu Was dujit. They said of him that he is mad. But not just the people. Do you know? Nuh alayhi salam, his own wife, used to go around telling the people that my husband is mad. The wife of Nuh alayhi salam used to go around telling everyone, my wife is mad. Sorry, my husband is mad. She's calling him majnun. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in Makkah al-Mukarramah, before the hijrah, in the mawasim of hajj, in the seasons of hajj, when people would come from all over Arabia, and he would go around visiting tribes and delegations in Mina and in the plains of hajj, what would happen is that he'd go, he'd speak to a group of people, invite them to the oneness of Allah, and then he'd move on to the next group, So Abu Lahab would follow him, his own uncle, and when he would speak to one group and move on to another group, Abu Lahab would then come to the first group and say to them, don't listen to anything he has said, he's my brother's son, he's my nephew, I'm his uncle, and I'm telling you he's mad. Don't listen to him. (laughs) Then the Prophet when he would finish from the second group and move on to another group, Abu Lahab would go to the next group and say, whatever this person has said, ignore him. He is my brother's son. He is my nephew. I am his elder. I am his uncle. I know him very well. He is mad. Do not listen to him. So the wife of Nuh salam, used to call him mad. The uncle of Rasulullah sallallahu Abu Lahab, used to call him mad. These were family members. It's very common. It's very common. So this is a sunnah and it continues today. Allah says they instruct each other and others to do to commit sin. And they actually prevent others from doing good. So anyway, that is one of the descriptions of the Munafiqun. Another one in the Quran, but Going back to the early part of today's speech, which is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned many, many traits throughout the Qur'an. It's difficult to encompass all of them. Uh, I've tried to cover as many as possible, and undoubtedly others will also come along in the discussion of other topics, so I'll highlight them then. But one other thing is betrayal. The munafiqun Hypocrites betray, and we're not just talking about minor betrayal. We are talking about treasonous, treacherous behavior. And this is what the hypocrites did at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. At every critical juncture, the munafiqun betrayed Rasulullah sallallahu wasallam and exposed him and his ch- uh, him and his followers to great danger, to mortal danger. It happened at the time of Uhud. It happened at the time of the Ghazut al-Ahzab. It happened at Tabuk. It happened on many occasions. And Allah actually references these in the Quran. So uh, the treachery and the treasonous behavior and their betrayal and the betrayal of the Munafiqun at the time of the campaign of Uhud, Ghazwat Uhud, a lot of this is covered in Surah Ali imran many, many verses. The treachery and the betrayal of the Munafiqun at the time of Ghazwat Al-Ahzab, also known as Ghazwat Al-Khandaq, is covered in great detail in Surah Al-Ahzab. The betrayal and the treachery and treasonous behavior of the Munafiqun at the time of Ghazwat Tabuk is covered in thorough detail in Surat al-Tawbah. And these were some of the final verses of the Qur'an to be actually revealed. The lying, the poisoning of minds, this is another trait of hypocrisy. This is also covered in Surat al-Nur when the hypocrites played a major role in spreading accusations, false allegations, and calumny against the honour of Rasulullah and that of his family. The famous story of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha which I've covered in Full detail in the multi-part commentary of Hadith al-Ifq from Sahih al-Bukhari, so please refer to that. But the hypocrites played a major role on that occasion too. They were instrumental in instigating and then uh, circulating the rumour, which then took hold. So, poisoning minds, spreading filth and corruption, gossiping besmearing and besmirching the name of others. This is not the trait, not the behavior of a mu'min. This is a characteristic of a munafiq. That's also covered in Surah Al-Nur. The betrayal and the treachery of the hypocrites at the time of Ghazwat Benin Nadir, another campaign within the city of Medina, similar to Ghazwat Al-Ahzab, is also covered in Surah Al-Hashr. So this was one of the key characteristics which Allah has actually expanded on in great detail throughout the Qur'an in these places. Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah Al-Imran, Surah Al-Hashr, which is the betrayal of the Munafiqoon. Betraying Rasulullah, reneging on their pledges, on their promises. In such a way, they actually harms the people and exposes them to mortal danger. This betrayal was one of the key characteristics. A mu'min is not treasonous, a mu'min is not treacherous, a mu'min doesn't betray, a mu'min upholds trust. A mu'min is trustworthy. A mu'min is honest. A mu'min doesn't sell his soul. And a mu'min doesn't sell his brother, his friend, his confidant, or anyone who trusts him. A mu'min is frank and honest. A motman, if he cannot do anything, he will say, look, I'm sorry, I cannot do this. A mu'min will not say one thing to you and as soon as your face is turned, stab you in the back, betray you, sell you, sell you out. That is actually the behavior of a munafiq. Why, what are, of course, there are many reasons, but one of the simple reasons why a munafiq does this is that, there's a saying in English, there are no friends, only interests. In politics, it's a famous phrase, there are no friends, only interests. And so you have major nations, when you have psychopaths ruling a whole nation in a dictatorial manner, then that person's whims and desires and that person's treason and treachery and their betrayal swings the entire country behind. And we saw that, for instance, in the Second World War. Hitler and Stalin both came to an agreement. That was their pact. A pact of non-aggression. They carved up Europe between them. And it was a promise. But you had both Hitler and Stalin. And neither of them had any intention of honouring their pledge or the pact, from the very beginning, from the very outset. Historical documents have categorically proven that. Neither of them lent any weight to the paper they signed the pact on, neither Both had an intention from the very outset of backstabbing each other. And these weren't just two individuals on the street. These two individuals had the lives of scores of millions at their disposal. And they swung their entire nations behind them in their treachery. So in politics, there's that phrase, there are no friends, only interests. So that's what dictated, to them, Stalin was no friend to Hitler and vice versa. They both, although they declared their friendship, neither of them saw each other as friends. They only saw interests. And when that interest dictated that they stab one another in the back and declare war on each other. And that treachery eventually led to the ruin of entire continents. And the greatest loss of human life in the history of mankind. That's it. It was dicta- that was the result of this political maxim, that there are no friends, only interests. So a mu'min, in everyday life, never adopts that attitude that it's only my interest that will dictate and guide everything. That's what a munafiq does. A munafiq has no friends. A munafiq only has interests. So he will do and he will go where his interest takes him. And what's his interest? Why does a munafiq behave in this backstabbing, treacherous, treasonous, deceptive behaviour? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is simple. Short-term gain, short-term sightedness, instant gratification, instant gain, short-term interest. Simple. That's how shallow the munafiq is. So, this betrayal is throughout the Qur'an, and that's uh, that's one of the major characteristics. A mu'min does not behave like that. And this is actually covered in that famous hadith of Rasulullah that the signs of a munafiq are three. When he lies, when he speaks, he lies. When he promises, he betrays that promise. And when he is entrusted with a trust, he betrays that trust. He proves to be treasonous. So, indeed, they displayed this at its absolute maximum on these critical occasions during the life of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Muslim community in al al-Munawwarah. And this is covered in great detail in all of these surahs of the Quran. And so, Nur, a Mu'min does not gossip, a Mu'min does not spread lies, a Mu'min does not falsely accuse. This is the behavior of a munafiq, not of a Mu'min. Lying isn't just that you've done something and then when you are questioned, you say, Oh, I didn't do it. That's not. Lying includes repeating. Unsubstantiated gossip and rumours about other people. And in fact, even if they are substantiated, if it doesn't concern the person, a mu'min doesn't talk about it. It's simple. Even if someone has done something, unless it concerns the mu'min, the mu'min does not concern himself or herself with it. And that's the lesson Allah gave in Surah an Nur. Why wasn't it that when you heard this, believing men and believing women thought good of themselves and said, This is a clear law. And Allah revealed that verse of the Qur'an, but it was always acted on it had already been acted on by some of the Sahaba رضي الله عنهم, according to many narrations. Ubay ibn, uh, some, uh, Abu Ayyub al Ansari did this, and according to some narrations even Ubayy ibn Ka'b did exactly the same. So it wasn't just Abu Ayyub al Ansari but also Abu Ayyub al Ansari. There was a famous story of Abu Ayyub al Ansari, he was sitting with his wife at home, and his wife Ummu Ayyub al Ansariya said to him, O Abu Ayyub, have you heard about Aisha and Safwan? Because the name of the person who was accused was Safwan ibn an. So she said, have you heard about Aisha and Safwan? <coughs> what people are saying? So she wasn't personally directly accusing her, Aisha radiallahu anha. She was merely repeating what she had heard. Gossip, rumor-mongering, chit-chat. Vain talk, meaningless gossip. She said, have you heard what uh, people are saying about Aisha and Safwan? So Abu Yubal Ansari, anh, knew what she was referring to. So he said to her, what an answer. He said, would you do it? Would you do this? she vehemently began protesting her innocence and she balked at the idea that Abu Ayyub would even question her that was she capable of doing this. So her reaction spoke volumes. How can you think this of me? So he calmly asked her. She calmly said to him, Have you heard what people are saying about Aisha and Safwan? So he calmly said to her, Would you do this? And when she reacted, he then said to her, For Aisha to Minki, then know that Aisha is far better than you. Simple. If you cannot imagine this about yourself, and you think only good of yourself, then how can you think any less of someone who is far, far better than you, Aisha Radiallahu Allāh?" So this husnudan that you have this favorable opinion that you hold of yourself, extend that to everyone else. And that's the meaning of the verse. Allah revealed the verse, but Abu Ayyub al Ansari had already acted on it, because he's the one who did it. And that's the meaning of the verse. Believing men and believing women should think good of themselves. So when they think good of themselves, they should even more so think good of others. That's the attitude of a mu'min. A mu'min doesn't repeat rumours, doesn't indulge in gossip, does not carry tales, does not speak idly, does not engage in chit-chat, in needless conversation. That's a mu'min. A munafiq does the total opposite. The munafiqun, the hypocrite. Although many, or, sorry, although some of the believers perpetuated the rumor and repeated it, the instigators of the rumor, the people who actually started the rumors, were the munafiqun. That's what the munafiqun does, and what Min doesn't do. That there are many other traits throughout the Qur'an. What I will do is I will suffice with this. As I said at the very beginning, today will be the last session about uh, traits of hypocrisy from the Qur'an. Just one more session. Next week I'll devote uh, some time to expanding on the traits of hypocrisy mentioned in some of the most famous hadith of Rasulullah wasallam. And then we will suffice with that. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah protect us from all of the traits of nifaq, of hypocrisy. May Allah make us amongst the mu'mineen.